This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. Benjamin Taylor is the author of two previous memoirs, Naples Declared, A Walk Around the Bay, and The Hue and Cry in Our House, which received the 2018 Los Angeles Times Christopher Isherwood Prize. He has written two novels and edited Saul Bellow's Letters and collected nonfiction. Here We Are, Taylor's memoir of his friendship with Philip Roth, was published in May 2020. Ben Taylor, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Thank you, Rob. Your book about your friendship with Philip Roth is one of those genre-bending pieces of work. It's not exactly a memoir. It's not exactly a piece of literary criticism. It's a fascinating combination of the two. How do you think about the, the form of writing that it takes? This book, Here We Are, is the third in a trilogy of memoirs that I've written. Naples Declared, a book about a city, The Human Cry at Our House, a book about a family, and now Here We Are, a book about a friendship. I have to say that I came late to the whole idea of autobiography, memoir, this sort of writing. When I was young, I thought that the big game was the novel, and the more inventiveness, the better. But after middle age, I suppose this was one sign that middle age had ended for me. It began to seem a sufficient task just to try to say what had really happened. And that's what I did in all three of these books. Did you think about this as a trilogy when you set out to write the uh, your books? No, ex post facto, I saw I had written a trilogy. I see. Did you see yourself prior to that primarily as a novelist, as a critic? As a stymied writer. <laughs> Where's the shelf in the Barnes & Nobles for that stymied writer? I was unsure what I wanted to do. I was fortunate enough to have several commissions to edit the letters of Saul Bellow, which was an absorbing and very rewarding undertaking, and to edit also his nonfiction, his, his essays. And then there was the equally consuming task of writing for the Yale Jewish Lives series, The Life of Proust. So those were things that kept me busy while the Naples book was taking shape. And I had published before that two novels. It's interesting to me that you have provided a certain kind of guiding role in both Roth now and in Bellow then. And the two of them had such a close relationship, sometimes competitive, sometimes antagonistic, always seems warm. How did you see your relationship to these two sort of masters? Putting together the, uh, the letters was in lieu of writing a biography of Bellow, which had been undertaken with great professionalism by someone else, Zachary Leader, and was anyhow beyond my capacities. I thought of that book, The Letters of Bellow, as in lieu of an autobiography, and said so in my introduction. Then when Cynthia Ozick reviewed the book in The New Republic, 
she gently reproved me, rightly so, for making this claim. She pointed out that letters are written without the benefit of much retrospect in the heat of the moment, whereas autobiography takes place years after the events have settled out and uh, is a very different sort of writing, mediated by the inevitable artistry of memory, and which means leaving out and switching around and modifying and even outright falsifying. As for Philip, I never had any inclination to write a biography of him. How could I have? I was a character in the story from 2001 on, but I did feel I had unique access to the person who lived inside of this public myth or carapace that he'd worn for so many decades. And it seemed like he encouraged you. At one point, he, he suggests that you, why, why didn't you write about this our friendship? The book was his idea. Yes. I was surprised by that. Whether he would have liked it or not is moot. People ask me, would Philip have liked your book? Did you think when you were writing, would Philip like this? Would Philip like that? No, such questions would have been very bad for the book. Yeah. The whole point is if, frankness. Nothing else but the truth matters now. He was certainly uh, someone who was faithful to that. Oddly enough, in his fiction, he was faithful to the particular and the truth, almost religiously so. You have this wonderful quote where Philip Roth says, something to the effect of, I don't have a philosophical bone in my body. I have no interest in big ideas. All I care about is the particular. And I was very struck by that. I thought it was, it really sort of, the penny dropped as I sort of understood the difference that made the difference between them. Yes. Sol Bell wrote a lot about protagonists who were professional intellectuals, like Moses Herzog, for example, like Charlie Citrine or, or von Humboldt Fleischer. Very often, these are men whose vaulting intelligence does nothing to save them, and that's part of what Bella regarded as the comedy of his novels. Philip wasn't so much interested in that personality, the sort of personality that would have fit in at the Committee for Social Thought at the University of Chicago. He was more interested in the sexual anarch on the one hand and the artist on the other the David Kepish figure and the Nathan Zuckerman figure. And he was interested in men who were not intellectuals, like Suede Laval. He was interested in heroically failed artists, like Mickey Sabbath. And he was interested in people preyed upon and destroyed by ideology, as in the case of Ira Ringgold. Those are some of the differences. So you met Philip Roth the first time in 1994, and you got to know him a little bit better in 98, and then finally actually sat down with him and had lunch in 2001. Why do you think it took so long for you two to get together? Well, I think that uh, had something to do with a letter I had written him after reading I Married a Communist. He then telephoned me, and we began a telephonic friendship. Then I moved back to New York full-time, and he was spending more time in New York, and we lived just about walking distance from each other. And we began having meals together, talking on the phone every day. And then he eventually, after great hesitation, great reluctance, he took to email. So we were constantly emailing too. Certain patterns were established. Dinner one day during the week, nearly always Sunday dinner, usually Chinese. And then we went over to Indian. At one point, you said you were going to introduce him to a better class of restaurant. I gather he was a fairly indifferent uh, eater in that way. 
Philip became a very rich man, but he retained the pecuniary habits of a young graduate student, really. He was appalled by high prices in restaurants. And I pointed out to him that he didn't really have to be. Then he discovered a number of new restaurants that I recommended. And uh, yes, he began eating better. He also hired a series of cooks and at that point began eating at home and eating very well. I think he discovered food later on in life. I think he thought of it as a trivial matter. I introduced him to the idea that food might be quite a serious matter. <laughs> I mean, I think about the way, say, Tom Wolfe describes uh, someone's suit with such obvious inside knowledge about tailoring and everything for all of his powers of description. I can't imagine Roth doing that, whether about clothing or about food. I remember one particular sports jacket that Philip claimed to have had uh, ever since uh, uh, Goodbye Columbus <laughs> was published. That's a long time ago. <laughs> he did. He made fun of his own clothing. Very, very occasionally he would require a new uh, garment. Always he would say that it was going to have to amortize uh, <laughs> because there would be no replacement for it ever. <laughs> The book is interesting because it straddles the line between literary criticism and autobiography or memoir in that it draws many connections between instances uh, in Roth's life and the way he used them in his fiction without ever reducing one to the other. I mean, I found that my appreciation for some of his work was really augmented by understanding, say, uh, his relationship to Melvin Tooman, who I'd never heard of. And But you, you sort of did an interesting job of kind of zigzagging between the life and the work. I did, and uh, it was according to no particular methodology or program. I just wrote these things down as they came to mind. So the result of living with the man and also living very intensively with his books for a number of years, teaching them too. I was going to say, you don't really talk about in, in this book or in the other memoir I, I read about uh, really when you first read Roth and what he meant to you as a novelist or also as a critic. I'm older than you and I can remember the year 1969 uh, very well. I was a junior and then a senior in high school. And that was when I first heard the name Philip Roth uh, because the whole country did. He became tremendously famous. The trap of great fame closed on him when he was 36 years old. And uh, I knew of him as a scandalous writer. Looking back on Portnoy now, I sort of share his feelings about it, that it was a very early rough go at what would be the later masterpiece, Sabbath Theater. The two books should be read together. Everything that was fresh and vitalistic and fun-loving and high-spirited in Portnoy has become tragic and death-haunted in Sabbath Theater. He has this wonderful uh, passage, you quote him, where he says that he wished that perhaps Portnoy had been only published, I guess it was Esquire and the New American Review and uh, Partisan Review, and perhaps not as a book, so as to uh, dissipate, I guess, the effect it had on creating such interest and, and passionate dislike from some in his work. He both liked and disliked fame. I think that's probably the case with most very famous people. I remember his saying to me about his friend, David Cornwell, uh, John le Carré, I should have done what he did. I should have had another name for my professional work. 
he remained perplexed by all this fame. It became a burden, but he would on no account have wanted to be an obscure writer or a coterie writer, a niche writer. So no Thomas Pynchon, he. He also said to me about Pynchon's career, I should have done that. There was this one wonderful section where you mused upon the fact that most readers would not have much interest in the lives, say, of Cynthia Ozick or E.L. Doctorow, yet they seem very interested and perpetually interested in Roth's life through his career. And I was wondering why you thought that was the case. I suppose it has to do with having come into the public eye so shockingly as a 36-year-old man uh, with Portnoy's Complaint, a book that broke every barrier, every norm, and gave good taste a black eye. And from there on, it was assumed that this person who writes like this must be like this. And uh, that's both right and wrong uh, about him. I think that people were always ready to uh, love or hate or be fascinated by the man uh, as much as the characters. And he became a kind of a myth, the myth of the man beset by libidinal rancor, libidinal anguish, the man beset by too much of everything. He lived inside of that myth the way Frost lived inside the myth of the farmer poet. But the thing about his fame, though, uh, was, as you note, that he was able to sort of live within it and even, as as Frost did with his persona, use it in creative and, and even sometimes very funny ways. With Roth, he didn't seem to suffer from his fame the way, say, uh, you know, Truman Capote or uh, Hunter Thompson, who was, you know, I would argue, sort of consumed by his fame and became kind of a parody of himself and it sort of destroyed his writing. Roth was uh, amazing in that he was able to take this uh, notion of the famous libidinal writer and weave it into his work and play with it and make something really wonderful uh, from it. Philip had a wonderful advantage in life, a happy childhood on which to build and uh, no interest in alcohol. Right. He talks about the Gentiles drinking themselves unconscious and while the Jews uh, studiously avoiding alcohol and waking up clear-eyed the next morning. Yeah. His genetic background saddled him with no addictions. And uh, when you look back over American literature prior to the arrival of the Jews, uh, Faulkner, Hemingway, and so on, it's largely an alcoholic affair. Oh, yes, yes, sure, about writers in Hollywood drinking themselves to death. You note something that uh, I I hadn't really thought of at all when you discuss uh, Roth's health problems. You say it was also the proximate cause of a creative rebirth, probably the greatest in American literary history. It would follow the experimentation of the counterlife and deception, a minor radio play-like novel completed shortly before his bypass, was a sequence of masterpieces, Patrimony, Operation Shylock, Sabbath Theater, American Pastoral, I Married Communist, The Human Stain, The Dying Animal, The Plot Against America, Everyman, Indignation, Exit Ghost, and more, including his masterly last bow, Nemesis. I'd read all those books never really thought about the fact that they came so late in his life after these health problems. It's as if he started an entirely new creative career after having had a incredibly successful one. Yes, it was an explosion in his later 60s and in his 70s, such as uh, you very rarely see in literature. Henry James wrote his best books, possibly his best books, when he was in his early 60s. But that's the nearest analog I can think of. People like mathematicians 
you always think of them as their early work being their best. Apparently always with mathematicians, yes. And even someone as great as Saul Bellow, who is certainly undeniably a genius and even got the Nobel that eluded Philip Roth. I've always thought his last novellas were not as good as his other work. I don't think he had the physical stamina for uh, long books after a certain... Well, he did manage it with Ravelstein, it's true. Again, he wrote Ravelstein after almost dying, uh, which fascinates me. That's right. He suffered some poisoning from a fish or something, didn't he? Very nearly died. He was in a coma. And then wrote this novel at 85. So that was really something. Of course, it's not The Adventures of Augie March. It's not Herzog. It's a pale reminder of the greatness of Saul Bellow. But Philip was right through his 70s doing the best work he'd ever done. And I think it had to do with the realization that American history was his muse. American history in his time from the 30s to the present. Yeah, you note that he really turned to history. You you mentioned a number of times that he was never happier than when he was reading one of these enormous tomes and studies of history. And he turned to history and his history with a kind of uh, rage and glee towards the end of his life. He never wrote about a different period than just pre- and post-war American uh, history. Oh, well, let's see here. The, the plot against America takes place in, in the late 30s and in forty and in 41 and 42. So that counter-historical imagining. Though he did try to get everything right about the Weequake section and the, the life of the Roths on Summit Avenue. I once asked him, would you consider writing a novel about American history long ago, say a novel set in the 19th century? And he looked at me quite puzzled, as if nobody, for example, as if Toni Morrison hadn't done this, many others hadn't done this. He said, why would I want to do that? I said, what about uh, the uh, the 18th century, I jokingly said. But he said, yes, I, I, I can just imagine that book. It was 1776 in the Weak Wake section. <laughs> I said, well, what about the Roths in the 20s when it was just the three of them, Bess, Herman, and Sandy? He said, well, why would I be interested in that? He was interested in his times. Right. The the idea of historical fiction that was not uh, within the history that he lived through seemed almost nonsensical to him. And certainly he's got one of the most, the wildest imaginations of any contemporary writer. If anyone were up to the task of trying to insert himself into a different period, it was Roth. I mean, part of it might be the fact that he was such an extraordinary reporter that he was able to get so much right about, uh, say, the making of gloves in that period. Or how a kosher butcher works or what the life of a jewelry salesman is. He always did research. He would go and talk to people. I guess the most dramatic example of this is the glove factory in American Pastor. I always had a feeling that he would have been a very good reporter. Uh, the world of work is very important to those books, and more so as, as he goes along. But work was seems like it was so central to him. I mean, he had this famously r- rigid and rigorous work schedule. He would go to work in the morning and would make his breakfast and go to work and have a little tiny lunch and then go back to work, swim. And then after uh, uh, swimming, he would go back to work again. 
I marveled at this and asked him about it. And he said, it, well, it, it's just the work ethic of my parents. Even though he's doing uh, sort of, uh, you know, highbrow advanced literary work, he also he took on the, the more sort of middle, lower middle class uh, work ethic of his parents. Uh, of Herman and Bess, yes. At one point you write that he had a uh, terrible gift for intimacy, which is a wonderful phrase. W- what do you mean by that? He had a mineral hard stare that was impossible to hide from. It was like looking at two black diamonds, especially after he had his cataract surgery. His eyes had a strange hard glitter to them in the recesses. And his, his love acted on you uh, like a truth serum. You told him things that uh, you didn't tell anybody else. He was, I gather, a uh, very gregarious person and one of those people who could talk to you and, as you say, get you to reveal things, get you to feel that you were the center of the universe. Oh, yes. And I haven't found that uh, most great writers are like that. He asked more questions than uh, I think most writers do upon meeting somebody. When he met somebody, he would immediately begin asking questions. Most great writers think they are the center of the universe. The great seducers, uh, whether or not they're physically attractive or not, and he was a handsome man, the great seducers, I find, are great question askers. You're right. He was never intenter on on this uh, Q&A routine than when faced with a beautiful young woman. You describe this scene on his deathbed when he's at the hospital. You said all these ex-girlfriends or ex-admirers around him, more women uh, than men. What was that scene like? Philip was very intent towards the end of his life on reconnecting with nearly all the women he'd ever loved. Let me just say that, uh, let me put it this way, he wanted to be in touch with his whole erotic past, and a lot of it was there in the waiting room as he lay dying. You mentioned that after he stopped writing, he went back and read through all of his work, sort of taking the measure of his work. It sounds like this was an extension of that. Yes, I suppose that is so. But when the uh, Library of America made the decision to reprint all of his work. He made the decision to reread all of his work, which most writers don't like to do. I don't consider it much fun. It's a grim treat to go back to an earlier book and read it. But he discovered he he thought he'd done quite well with certain things. He had a particular love for an early novel, When She Was Good. That wasn't necessarily one of his uh, most celebrated novels. No, it didn't do well at all. Philip had a lot of flops. People forget that now. Every, what, year, two years, maybe three at the most, he'd have a novel out. Yes, absolutely. It ended up being 31 books. You are uh, gay and he is straight. Do you think that had any influence on the the nature of your uh, friendship? He had a long history of friendships with gay men, so I don't think it was anything out of the ordinary. Somebody once said to me, uh, you know, I think Philip Roth may have been a latent homosexual. I said very latent. <laughs> Talk about repression. That was uh, deep, deeply repressed. Part of the pleasure of reading your book is that you really uh, reveal the tender side of Roth, something that uh, I just had not suspected existed. He sounds like he was an enormously empathic and tender fellow. Yes, indeed. There's this line in one of the books, the tenderness was out of control. I often felt in his presence that the tenderness was out of control. I also think it was one of the luckiest breaks of my life. 
In your first memoir, The Hue and Cried Our House, you talk about your friendship with a young man who uh, eventually becomes a puppeteer, who I think dies of AIDS at some point. And I was very struck reading that in preparation to talk to you about this book and seeing the parallel that both you and Roth had such a uh, prominent puppeteer in your lives, Mickey Sabbath in Sabbath Theater being a great puppeteer. Yes, that was Robert Anton, who was a puppeteer from childhood on. I wrote a novel, a first novel, Tales Out of School, uh, with a uh, puppeteer in it, which appeared in 1995. And Philip, in that same uh, year, same season, right down to the same month, published his book about a puppeteer. We barely knew each other then. We had just met. But what a strange coincidence. It sounds like a kind of coincidence uh, out of a Philip Roth novel. Yes. Listen, thanks so much. Take care, Ben. I'll talk to you later. My pleasure, Rob. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.